Welcome to Totally Pretentious, a podcast about great movies. I'm David. And I'm Sean. And tonight we're going to be talking about Don McKellar's Last Night from 1998. A very interesting film, I, I should say, and we'll probably have a lot to say about it, although I will have some criticisms, David. Will you now? Well, they're, they're, uh, they're already invalid, but uh, we'll... Oh, we'll, oh <laughs> is that so? <laughs> I realized when I was watching the film that I would have criticisms, and it's the first time in doing this show that we've we that I would have actually have set out to talk about something I did not like about a film because we've mm-hmm. never really done that in the other things we've watched it's always been about what we found interesting or right. sort of analyzing things and we never really talked about whether or not we thought the films were particularly successful in doing whatever we thought they were trying to do which I do find really interesting uh but in this case I will have some quibbles with certain all aspects right. so all right fair enough but since we're uh, introducing the show, I figured since it's been a while since you and I have even talked in anything other than a 140 characters, uh, we should say what we've been up to. And I want to start with you, David, because you disappeared and probably went to, you know, like the Arctic and met the thing and all that. So <laughs> Not quite. Well, I was up in, uh, at our uh, cottage on Lake Winnipeg uh, uh, writing like a mad thing. So, uh, yes, I, I disappeared from both this and, and the Skiffy and Fanti uh, podcasts. Uh, but I did manage to uh, beaver away at uh, a few short stories, um, uh, got started on, uh, g- g- made some good progress on uh, the sequel to Gethsemane Hall and uh, got going on the current uh, Black Library novel that um, I uh, should be wrapping up in uh, just under two weeks. Well, given that the semester just started, that's going to get a little difficult. <laughs> it's going to get, well, yeah, there's another one that's, it, it's going to get busy. Yeah, yeah. Because you're, you're now but, teaching because of the, the downfall of the uh, public university. You're not teaching like a 12-12, something in that vicinity. I'm <laughs> just kidding. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Not quite. It is. Yeah, we 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 are getting some heavier loads uh, uh, this uh, this year. But uh, but I, you know, I'm getting to do some fun courses. Uh, I'm teaching uh, the um, uh, course on video games in the in the winter and um, in the fall. Uh, I'm doing a thing on European horror films, which is uh, a course I I taught a few years ago for the first time, and it's it's very near and dear to my heart. So I'm I'm really I'm, I'm quite looking forward to getting uh, in front of the classroom again. That's awesome. That's that's really great. Well, I'm teaching a space opera course at the moment. Well, that must be fun. Oh my god, I have not had so much fun teaching in a long time. <laughs> I am having a blast. We just finished with E.E. E. Doc Smith's The Skylark of Space, which I must say is a terrible book. And my students have had a great deal of fun uh, making fun of it with me <laughs> because of some of its quaint uh 1920s social misogyny <laughs> i guess would be the thing cuz it's it's got some issues <laughs> i should say oh, i imagine it does yeah and um and and the writing is pretty atrocious it is i mean i've had to explain to my students a couple of times that you know we're reading this novel and we really need to not think of it as a novel about characters so much as plot that's facilitated by characters right it's really oh there are a lot of things that happen in the story that are basically they're they just occur just so we can keep moving the plot forward so like characters will come up and be like oh and by the way i obviously studied that magic thing that we need to know about for this plot point to keep going 
surprise. <laughs> um, and it's it's been really fun to kind of talk about you know it in ter- as a cultural artifact. Even even though I I do I have made fun of the book a few times because uh, it is rather amusing. However, I did find it really interesting that the novel basically brings up eugenics and mass genocide and doesn't even blink an eye at it. No, there's more than a few works that uh, from that era that uh, that that did that. Um, I got I remember um, there's a um, uh, there's a film, actually a serial from uh, the early 30s called The Lost City, uh, where there's a scientist who, among the other things that he invents, is um, a uh, a device that um, that well, it changes your race, it makes you white, and uh, and he, but he's not the villain, and in fact, the hero tells him that his invention will be the greatest boon mankind has ever seen. Yeah, so, that's, wow, okay. Yep. So, like, when George Shiler did a very similar thing in, oh, gosh, I want to say it's, like, 1926. I can't remember when that book was published. It may have been a little earlier, or may have even been later. I can't remember. George Shiler, who is a, a writer uh, around the Harlem Renaissance, uh, who he wrote a book called Black No More, which is sort of a dark satire about... I think it's it's early 20th century or late 19th century uh, arguments about about technologies that were being made to actually lighten people's skin, like bleaching agents and things like that. Right. And there was an actual news article or news uh, advertisement released where someone had had claimed that they could solve blackness with this revolutionary new treatment, and you could make them white. And it was yeah. all. You know, hunky dory, as he as he would have put it. Uh, it was obviously a nonsense. But George Tyler basically takes that as the premise. He says, scientists who actually turn out to be a black scientist has discovered a way to change people's color. And what is that going to do to the society when black people in in a position where being black is basically the worst thing you could be? What are they going to do? Well, of course, a whole lot of them are going to change their color, and that completely upsets the apple cart because now all of a sudden all these racist people are running around going where are all the black people how do we find them and then of course then you get the the fun part at the end where it turns out that all of these super racist you know aryan white nation awesomeness people turn out to to actually be part black and not have not known it all along um it's it's a satire it's it's not meant as a serious novel it doesn't reinforce the values it's sort of imagining a future where this could be possible and sort of just poking there's a hot red poker into the racism of its time um it's a really good book though hmm. i really like yes, it where, yeah. whereas the lost city is not being satirical at all it just thinks this is a good idea and that's the same with the skylark of space where the white super muscular hero uh manages to tame the black villain uh, and who mysteriously just basically goes into the background and it's not a big deal, then shows up on an alien planet, is uh, uh, basically meets a dark-skinned, green dark-skinned people who turn out to be evil, and then it rescues a prince who is enslaved and then goes to a, the other side, which are light-skinned green people, and then gives them the technology in order to commit mass genocide against the dark-skinned green people because the dark-skinned green people are the bad ones, and the the are super muscular. Um, I say super muscular because the the story constantly reinforces how muscular he is. Uh, his super muscular white hero leaves 
perfectly knowing that all of these these children are going to be exterminated from the air by bombs and it's all good because the light-skinned ones are the good ones <laughs> they're all good they're the noble savages yeah charming it's yeah i mean this is something i talked about is there's a lot of this really ingrained colonial rhetoric about things like eugenics and genocide uh-huh. and 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 there's just a lot of ingrained racism in in the piece and there is some sexism although the sexism honestly is the least egregious aspect of the book uh which is not something that you you know I, I really expected with the book. I really thought that that its female characters would not have anything approaching uh, significant agency, but the female characters tend to have uh, significantly more agency than the people of color in the book. Right. So, yeah. Um, but anyway, I'm sorry. There's a there's a whole smorgasbord of stuff involving that. Um, the only other thing that I I've, I've been up to then is trying to get through the Abel Ferrara and write a PhD thesis. And yeah. yeah, easy things both. Yeah, totally easy. I, you know, I I had a lot of fun. I I got past the the driller killer, and then almost everything between the driller killer and cat chaser, I more or less liked. Fear City I thought was a weak film. Um, it wasn't terrible. I just felt like it was it was not a terribly well written film, and was less interesting than maybe something like Miss Forty Five or even China Girl. Um, which is his Romeo and Juliet film. Right. Then I got yeah. the Cat Chaser, and I'm having so much trouble. Like I just, I, there's there's a narrator who's talking, at like I I don't know why he's talking to me because he's the character who's on the screen, and it's not the same actor's voice. And when he talks to me, it's all it's never anything interesting. Hmm. It's very it's just a it's it's a film that just feels like like he needed a paycheck. Which well, it's, I mean, you never, uh, you know, what the uh, you know, the, the reasons why uh, you know the directors would take a, a given project. Um, so so okay, so you, that's eighty nine. You still okay? I was trying to remember what it was. So it's based on an Elmore Leonard novel. Uh, back before there were um, uh, a lot of good Elmore Leonard adaptations. Yeah, and and it shows. <laughs> it's not particularly good, and I really just it, it makes me upset because it has Peter Weller in it. Mm-hmm. Who I actually really like. I think he's he he has a good presence on the screen in this particular film, but he's not he's not given a lot to work with. And it and it involves and I can't remember the the area, but there and it involves U.S. military operations in one of the um, one of the Caribbean islands, and I cannot it's remember. A, yeah, okay. I, I had South America in my head when I, but I, it's been a while since I've seen the film, so it, it may be South America, and I'm just confusing it. But I got the impression they were on islands. Um, mm. And oh, they may it, be. Yeah, it's been yeah, ages and since I've seen it. It involves him going back to where he was part of this military operation that went terribly south, meeting up with resist, uh, an old resistance fighter, and that's about where I'm at. And I and I'm guessing he's looking for forgiveness or he's trying to get laid. And I can't forget. I can't remember which one is going on. And maybe it's a combination of both. And I was going to say in, in an Abel Ferrara film, it could be both. Yeah, at the yeah. same time. It's just it's not very well written. And it's, I mean, there's just stuff going on in it that I just, it, it's it's just poorly handled, I think. It's very much, it, like, for a guy who made Miss 45, which is enormously symbolic, and uh, I felt, I still feel is his best film that I've seen so far, uh, to go from that to China Girl, which I also thought was really quite good, 
to then this film. I just feel like he took like he took like ten steps backwards. Well, you, at least you still have Bad Lieutenant um, as we get to uh, scripted by Miss Forty Five actually, um, and uh, that's I mean there's really interesting stuff uh, going on there, and that may be his most. Um, um, me perhaps his most critically successful film. Certainly, uh, I think the one that had got the highest profile. Uh, well, it's got release. Harvey Keitel. How could it fail? It's and it is a a real uh, barnstorming performance by Keitel. A very very brave one uh, too. So uh, it's uh, yeah. It, it's I mean it, it gives that film will give you a lot to chew on. You might it, some of it might be rather indigestible, but it, it'll definitely be you know uh, you'll be chewing for a long time. Well, excellent. So, uh, well, then I think we should get to our uh, our movie. Right. So last night, um, which uh, came out in, uh, like I said, in 1998, uh, the same year as uh, the twin uh, uh, big object smacking the earth fantasies of Deep Impact and Armageddon, uh, is also an end of the world tale. Um, it has uh, uh, been called perhaps the quintessentially Canadian take uh, on the, the apocalypse movie. Um, unlike uh, Deep Impact and Armageddon, it doesn't flirt with the end of the world. It ac- the end of the world actually happens. Uh, we are in the last six hours before uh, the, uh, the world comes to an end, uh, which, for reasons never explained, uh, will be at exa- precisely midnight Eastern time. Uh, how the world is ending, we don't know. Uh, the only visible symptom is that uh, it never becomes night. Uh, and uh, we follow the lives of, uh, the, the interconnected lives of a group of characters in Toronto uh, as they, uh, we, we see how they face the last six hours. And uh, the, it's actually a, a very funny film. Uh, it's, uh, th- there's a lot of, of comedy in it, but uh, a lot of g- genuine emotion as well. And it's a, a dark comedy. It, yeah, it's a dark. It is a dark comedy. It's uh, it's also uh, something of a who's who of um, uh, of a Canadian cast there. Uh, yes, I it, recognize it, it, the Battlestar Galactica actor Callum. Oh, which <laughs> right? The, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> uh, and well, so you have. Um, it, it's a film that, and this is, I think, uh, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to do it. It'd be interesting to get uh, your perspective in that. Um, when I've uh, when I teach this film, one of the things that I um, talk about is is the I mean the response to the film in Canada uh, for a lot of people has, has been one of delight because we re- we get so much of it right. There's a lot of humor in there that uh, I wonder will it travel outside of of the borders right? It is very much a Canadian story uh, uh, being aimed at Canadians. Uh, like the, the, a throwaway gag, for instance, uh, when um, uh, the Caleb Keith Rennie character is told by Genevieve Bujold that uh, his stepmother, I believe it is, uh, is there's a prayer circle in Mel Lassman Square. Um, now, the uh, there is no Mel Lassman Square in Toronto. Uh, it is highly unlikely there ever will be. Uh, that would be uh, tantamount to uh, hearing about the, I don't know, um, 
the Donald Trump na- Nature Preserve. Uh, Lastman <laughs> was one of uh, Toronto's most buffoonish uh, mayors, getting himself pictured shaking the hands of Hell's Angels, uh, making cracks about being put in a uh, in a cauldron and boiled when he's going to Africa and that kind of thing. Uh, so no, there's never going to be a Mel Lastman Square, and it's just it's just a, a line that just flies by. Uh, and uh, but is you know if you're watching this, especially you know if you're a Canadian watching this in 1998, you're going to get it. You're going to laugh. Uh, There's there's deliberate casting. I I think it can't be coincidence. uh, Having the very polite, caring uh, gas executive being played by David Cronenberg. Yeah, that Um, was creepy. (laughs) (laughs) He was so creepy in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) I I know he's polite, but at at any moment, like that moment when he... Okay, so I just we got to go to this thing real quick. All right. When the guy with the shotgun, the hoodlum with the shotgun, yes. comes at him, and he starts backing away into the darkness, saying, "I'm not afraid, not afraid. You're the one that's afraid." I was yeah. waiting at any moment for him to become the doctor from that Clive Barker movie, Nightbreed. Nightbreed. Like at any moment, he's gonna put on that creepy mask and like <laughs> take out a knife and he's gonna, like carve up the kid because it is the creepiest moment in the whole film for me. <laughs> And, and and I think that's you know because of the uh, the extra diegetic baggage, right? Because really, I mean, it, it's it's probably the most. Well, in some ways, it's the most tragic um, uh, moment in, in the film. Even though, you know, ironically, because I mean, everybody's going to die half an hour later, uh, but uh, he um, he dies alone uh, in uh, in in that moment. Um, and you know, we, we've just seen him being um, you know rigorously decent all the way along. Uh, right up right. until spending uh, the moment all of, his, of death. his time calling every single person <laughs> in the in the his his roster of people who get gas from his company, saying we will keep the gas on as long as we possibly can, right till the end. Yeah, yeah, which yeah, it's very... is it's one of those surreal moments in the film because it's one of the very first things we hear because right? we see um, Don McKellar uh, in. That, that's the first scene we see is Don McKellar lying on 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 the uh, floor of his living room, and that message comes on, and it's like this. It's very surreal because once you realize the world's ending, and this guy is calling and giving this message that's oddly comforting. Yeah, and one that though no one that, that he never gets anyone on the phone. Right, nobody cares. Uh, the every time we see him. Uh, uh, may deliver that message. It's to an answering machine. Yep. Uh, not not once does someone pick up the phone. But it is uh, surreal. In fact, I, you know, so much of the film is when you. Uh, I mean, on the one hand, the you know some of the things that people are getting up to, and you think this is the end of the world, and you know it, it's so much seems so banal. I mean, would you really be wanting to spend your last few hours doing that? And yet we could ask that question of so many of the things that we see the, uh, the, the people doing there. And, and so we get this, I, I think, a quite delightful tension between, uh, well, the, the comedy and the dread. Uh, I mean, as, as much as there is, the, the, there are gags in the film, I think there is this legitimate sense of the clock ticking, right? That, um, mm-hmm. in some ways. Literally, uh, in fact, because it, the, the film constantly reminds us of how much time is left. Yeah. Either by actual screen, uh, our, our markers that come on the screen, big black, black slide comes on, or by that runner, the like town crier lady. Yes. Who's running around telling people in very specific detail, it's like X number of hours and minutes left. Yeah. And that's and, a Jackie yeah. Burroughs, another, another mainstay of, uh, of, of, of Canadian, um, 
film and television. I think uh, she was probably one of the Road to Avonlea people. Um, yeah, she was. Uh, she was uh, one of the, uh, the mainstays of that. Uh, and and see, though this is a film that makes absolutely no attempt to um, uh, convince us of whatever this is, whatever the, the, the apocalypse is going to be, I do find it to be one of the uh, the films where I feel that the world really is going to end. Um, in, in, of, of all the, uh, uh, the, the apocalypse movies that I've watched, and there's quite a number of those. Um, and, I mean, I think the, uh, that, that tension, that, that weirdness, um, or the, 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 the surreal aspect that, that you mentioned is also captured very nicely for me in, in one of the early scenes when Donald McKellar comes to his family's place and they're doing Christmas. And yeah. uh, his his mother takes him to task for being late, uh, and uh, he he says to her, "Well, mom, there are two really good reasons for that, which you should bear in mind. Uh, one, <laughs> it's not really Christmas, is it? And two, it's the end of the world." And everyone kind of by his dad for this. Yeah, and 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 everyone just kind of, but after right after he says that, there's just this awkward silence, right? Uh, everyone's really uncomfortable. Like you just, you, you don't. It's not something you talk about in polite company. You don't mention that the world's ending in yes. six hours. And this is something that the father says much later, right? He says, you know, uh, when when the husband of his daughter, I think it's his husband, her husband, her boyfriend, uh, or whatever, yeah, uh, who. Who says like, oh, well, I can understand why people are in the streets doing, you know, killing and murdering and destroying stuff. And the father says, yes, but that's not how we behave when we're civil. And isn't it an honest test of our ability? A test of to our be, values. A test of our values to, in fact, <laughs> not do those things. And and what you see throughout the film is all of the ways in which people are tested by the idea that they are going to die and how everybody responds very differently. So we have David Cronenberg. Uh, super creep master who decides to spend his last hours not hooking up with the woman who clearly is got the hots for him, uh, which he could. Well, no, do. he's you know he's but he's on his way home to wait for his wife Sandra O. Oh. oh, is that who she is? Really? That's, yeah, that's why she's crying and sobbing when she's playing the message over and over again on uh, on McKellar's answering machine. That's her I husband. I uh, see. I didn't pick that up. I yeah, did we, not and pick we, that up because it never, it never made it clear to me like he didn't listen to his messages. No, he didn't because, uh, yeah, he, well, he, he, he didn't, he didn't bother. But also, he, she never told him who her husband was. So the, we don't realize uh, that fully. Um, the, the, there are strong hints, right? He's, uh, I mean, he's clearly, he's, we do see him trying to get hold of her, um, uh, and his cell phone's not working either. Uh, and she and she uh, has tried him on on the car phone. So I think by the time she's, um, um, I'm trying to remember exactly when it's made absolutely clear that uh, I, I think it's it's strongly implied uh, for much of the film that he is uh, the, the husband that she's trying to get to. But it's not made absolutely explicit until uh, uh, she's playing his voice over and over again uh, on the um, uh, on the answer machine. Now that she knows it's too late for her to get to him. But isn't she playing the message he's been leaving? Yeah, that's the that's the last. Um, that's all she has of him now. It's that is his message. But why would he call his own wife to leave the message about no, no, no. keeping the gas on? No, it's he, he didn't call her. He, he just himself. <laughs> no, no, he called. Uh, um, uh, he called uh, Patrick Wheeler, uh, Don McKellar. 
right? That's oh. the it's the message that we hear being left at the very beginning of the film, right? Which which uh, McKellar ignores. Um, uh, but when she comes back and is, you know, and, uh, that's when they find the message, right? Or, and when, when, when Don, when, when, when Patrick realizes that that voice is her husband, he didn't know. See, because uh, I, I did not pick that up because I got the very distinct sense that the woman he worked with very much had a thing for him. Oh, she did. Yes. Yes. Okay. So I'm not wrong to pick that up. No, no, no. She definitely had something for uh, uh, for okay. him, um, but uh, but yeah, he didn't for her. No, in fact, she goes to Callum Rennie's place, um, yeah, saying that uh, that she's a virgin, which yes. I don't know if that's true, but I it think, doesn't matter. I think, yeah. Well, in fact, that's some of the discussion they have, but I think it, again, it is uh, strongly implied that it is true, um, and uh, uh, so and this they, is they this die is her... in coitus, as they say. Yeah, yeah, um, and they. The fade to white that uh, uh, comes for all the characters in the final moments of the film. Okay, so that's a detail I very much missed because I got the. I guess I missed the um, the, and this may be because when I was watching it, I was in a place that was noisy. Maybe I missed a key detail, but I was under the impression that she was listening to that message over and over because she was hoping that there would be another message behind it. No, that's uh, th- that's all it is, and that's why uh, Patrick says to her, uh, "You can tell he's really conscientious. He's uh, he sounds very nice, right? He's commenting on uh, the uh, the message, like he's parsing what little he can out of that voice." Yeah, as a way to comfort her. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, In fact, if you if you um, uh, and it's something that I think it only really struck me um, on a uh, on a sub- subsequent viewing of the film is that. Um, and we have a whole range of characters in there, but they are all linked in some way. Uh, you know, and it might be quite tangential, right? Uh, that, that Cronenberg, um, well, yeah, no, the, that every one of them in some way knows somebody else that, that, that we see. So there are no characters, um, well, with the exception, I suppose, of the mother and daughter on the bus. Um, who just who just sit there? But all the other ones that are that have really um, any any kind of important part to play in the film are linked to all the others uh, by at least one other person. Yeah, and I did notice that that everyone in some ways linked to some other character. So it's sort of like the six degrees of bacon. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Only not as there are fewer degrees. But. Yes, it's, it's only yes. All of the characters probably even the most further the ones who are furthest apart are still probably only one or two degrees away from each other. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting. So I want I want to go back to something that you you had he had basically asked me a question about, but we never got to answer yeah. the question, which is whether or not the the jokes the Canadian jokes would have, right. would yes. have been picked up. And I will say that no, the joke you told me about. Uh, about the the square, uh, I did not pick up on that. I still laughed at the joke because of the other implication, which is that she's asking him to go to a prayer circle, but we know what he's been up to right, for yes. the last <laughs> few hours, which is sleeping with various women. And it's not so much later that we realize exactly what he's doing, which is he's like methodically made a sequence of of lists of features he wants to in. in Things he was wanting to have sex with, I guess, is the way to put or, it. Or way, or ways to have sex. All of his, yeah, all of his sexual fantasies, uh, listed uh, in, in a way that re- not entirely uh, unreminiscent of uh, Kevin Spacey's apartment in Seven on his kitchen wall. 
it's kind of psychotic. It, 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 and you notice that the, the the films kind of plays that up, right? I mean, it is kind of creepy looking, and the there's a moment of cre- of sinister music uh, as he reveals it to Patrick. Yeah, and there are a couple moments, right, when he, um, when he, he, I think it's when the the French teacher comes by, yes. and he he quietly closes that that uh, folding door. Yes, completely. so that she, it won't. Yeah, so that she won't see in there. Because, because of course, he knows <laughs> that anybody who, any woman who sees that, is going to respond not with, "Oh, he's he's knocking off a checklist of sex fantasies he wants," <laughs> but after he's done this stuff to me, he's then going to cut my head off and wear it like a hat, um, because that's exactly what it looks like, and I and I think that's intentional, right? It's trying to play up like he is this psychotic serial killer, and the irony is that he's he's not actually. He's just. He's he's tried to think methodically about what he wants to spend his last days doing. Yeah, I mean the the film uh, is like all of the conventions that we expect from this kind of apocalypse movie um, are all absent, right? So the you know the 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 psycho uh, who you know, often makes life difficult for people. Um, no, he's not there. Uh, the well, neither, neither is the hero, right? Uh, where are our deep core drillers off to uh, take care of the problem? They're not right, there. There are no heroes, and while there are there are hoodlums and there are psychotic people, they're all only mentioned. They're very rarely shown on screen. We only see one moment really when when uh, when Sandra O's character is uh, is attacked. Um, yeah. But that that is a brief moment, and that's really it. We don't yeah. see any other. I mean, the only other thing that happens is a bunch of uh, random people on the street pick her car up and. and <laughs> lean it up against a telephone pole. <laughs> yeah, and and so there, you know, we we hear that there have been riots and all all that, but that's it's all past, right? All the, the crisis is over, right? The all of the the panic um, that that preceded uh, that that led up to this is it's all over with. It's kind of aftermath. So though we do see some rioting, it's almost like people are going, oh yeah, we should be rioting, shouldn't we? Okay, yeah. uh, so let's let's knock this streetcar over, or let's let's jump up and down on this car, right? There's um, there, there, there's not a lot of conviction to it. It's just it's one of the things that yeah we, we need to tick off our list and and, and do as well, and and yeah. so I mean Sandro's uh, encounter um, as she's you know tr- trying to uh, is, you know, her car is stopped by. Um, uh, uh, by these, these people, it's. I mean, what, what she experiences there could happen to um, anyone trying to get through a pedestrian traffic jam at, uh, on the at a football game, right? Yeah. Uh, and in fact, the, uh, the 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 street celebrations are presented as essentially uh, the countdown to New Year's Eve, or the countdown uh, uh, to, to midnight on New Year's Eve, right? Yeah, in fact, literally countdown. Yeah, everyone going ten, nine, eight, uh, confetti in the air as uh, the, the the moment approaches. Almost, almost like defiantly facing the end of the world, like with a giant middle finger. Yeah, that's what that felt like to me. Is that was what I was trying to convey? Is like we're all gonna die, but you know, to hell with this idea that we're gonna lie down and be depressed and sad about it. We're gonna celebrate as a giant middle finger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the sister, right? The sister and the and the, and her boyfriend, you know, they're they're up like standing on a car, I think, and and just screaming and going, yeah, yeah. right, in this moment of absolute mass destruction and yeah. death, as presumably the sun goes supernova and burns everybody. Um, 
Well, or I mean, I think the uh, I don't even think it's that right because it's it, you know the, the whatever it is that the film very carefully prevents us from getting any idea of of what right there's not there's no explanation you can come up with that would make sense, um, and it just it just happens. Uh, it just happens that the likely idea is something to do with the sun because as you mentioned very early on, right, is that the that it's supposed to be night but it's not. Yeah, but there's no sense of uh, heat. I mean, it, it, um, I, I think um, possibly my uh, my what might be my favorite um, end of the world film uh, 19, is uh, the day the Earth caught fire, uh, British film from uh, 1961 or two. Is that the is that the cartoon one? No. Okay. No, it takes place entirely in the almost entirely in the offices of the Daily Telegraph. In fact, it is one of the most authentic uh, newspaper uh, movies. Um, and uh, the though the premise is preposterous, uh, simultaneous nuclear um, uh, tests by uh, the, uh, the United States and the Soviet Union knock the Earth off its um, <laughs> uh, out of its orbit, and it's slowly moving towards the sun. Uh, so yeah, it's preposterous, but the way in which we experience it in the film is extremely convincing, uh, and you are sweating by the end of the movie. Uh, as you know, you're seeing the the actress getting hotter and hotter and hotter as as the uh, um, as the film goes on, it's it's meticulous in the details of like what does this mean? You know, if everything's getting hotter and hotter and hotter, uh, and in fact, the I mean the the though the reason for the uh, the rising heat is, um, is is of course outdated. Uh, the effects of it, the idea of of and and the theme that human stupidity is dooming us. To uh, roast um, on our planet uh, feels very, very prescient. That's uh, interesting. Cause... Yeah, I h- highly recommend it. Uh, and so there, you really get a sense of the sun, right? But here, I don't know if we ever see the sun. We uh, see a couple shots. Couple, yeah. I mean, but it's it, just, it's just ordinary. It's just always day, or all, I mean, it's all, it's always kind of a, a hazy late afternoon. Yeah, and I, but I do notice that the that the longer the film goes, that that haziness is more emphasized towards the end, because there's that there is that wonderful shot of an empty street with the the town crier. Yeah, you know, there's nobody around for her to talk to, but she's screaming out the last minutes, and there's that that shot uh, going down that street with the the sort of hazy sun. Um, and it's almost yeah, like it's not that the sort of normal orb of the sun we would think of. It's sort of driven out into this. It's like this big yellow. It's not even a circle anymore. It's sort of this fading, massive wall of yellow in the background, um, almost like you know you would imagine like like the dawn sun, right? The sun sort of coming up and bringing that in yeah. um, with the fog. But of course, it's we know it's not because it's supposed to be nearly midnight. Yeah, and again, I mean, and that it, it may be something to do with the sun, but I think the uh, the, the film basically, um, I mean, it, it never tells us because it's not important. What matters is that the movie's gonna is that the world's gonna end at midnight. Right. It's um, not important for us to know exactly what's going on. We can yeah. make guesses, um, but in terms of like the like, what's the explanation? And I do appreciate that it doesn't bother trying because uh, there there are oftentimes you get an apocalyptic movie with like they, you know, the the core of the the earth has stopped spinning. <gasps> Well, yeah, and I mean, so if let's you, dig down and drop nukes into it, and that's to solve the problem. I mean, it, it, it's um, it, um, in some ways, it, it's doing something in parallel to uh, something that, that Tremors did, right? Where uh, you know, we we are presented with all kinds of, you know, we, you know, where do the where do the graboids come from? 
we don't know. Uh, the uh, we have our, our scientists, and she comes. She dismisses one theory after another. She tries to think of um, you know possible reasons for them being here, but she realizes that none of the theories that she comes up with are tenable. Makes sense. And yeah. so all that we're left with is they sure ain't local boys. Uh, and uh, well, and, and it comes and, down and, to also like you know. Every time they talk about these things, it's always like the first time they talk about it, right? It's it's the, that first tentacle, but yeah. they don't know what the what that tentacle is attached to. No, and 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 they keep getting these different <laughs> layers where they realize how little they know about them, um, and of course they assume even in the final moments, right, that they're dumb, and so they can trick them. But it turns out they're not actually; they're capable of learning, and that creates new problems. Yeah. So it's sort of this this ignorance, and I think in this film. I think what's interesting about it is that uh, by not telling us anything about it, it makes very clear that hope of salvation is lost. We will yeah. not get anyone miraculously showing up with a solution. This is it. We we don't need to know what's happening that is ending the world. We just need to know that it is going to end and all of human ingenuity has failed to find a solution. That's it. Yeah, and and so there joins, like, like I was saying, both tremors and, well, for that matter, the birds, where um, the well, to take the uh, uh, the line from uh, the birds when um, uh, Rod Taylor's asked, well, why is this happening? You know, there's well, there's no reason for it. He says, well, it's happening. Isn't that a reason? Uh, these are films that don't give us an explanation, uh, which a it's it's not needed because that's not the point of the films. But b if you think about it, the explanations that we are given for any uh, end of the world movie you can think of, uh, or any you know uh, a monster on the loose film, that the reasons never really make any sense. They're not really sensible. It's just that we are so um, conditioned to expecting an explanation that it stands out when we aren't given one. And oftentimes the the solutions, or excuse me, the the uh, explanations are really, really dumb. I submit to you the happening. <laughs> well, yes, yes. But, I mean, uh, and that, that being a particularly egregious example, but I don't think any... Um, and and, and I'm, I'm not saying this to be dismissive of, of Apocalypse films, because Lord knows I love them. Well, I've, I've taught an entire course on them. Um, but uh, the... Do you know would would any of the explanations given in any of these films really stand up to scrutiny? Now, in some instances, the you know the, 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 there's going to be explanations that are necessary to the the function of the film, um, which is fine. Uh, but in other cases, um, there, uh, there there is none. Um, I think uh, I mean I guess the the other one that um, uh, plays I, I think delightfully with the idea of an explanation. Um, uh, with and, and makes it both in some ways convincing, but also highly symbolic, is Lars von Trier's Melancholia. Uh, interesting, interesting. Which uh, you know, uh, there too, you know, we we know the world's going to end because the opening, uh, the, the the spectacularly beautiful opening minutes of the film show us the Earth completely destroyed. So, okay, we, <laughs> there's no way out. We know that's going to happen. And then we and then we get the rest of the film leading up to that. Right, and it becomes about, as I haven't seen it, but it, like in the case of last night, it becomes about the characters and their responses to an inevitability, right? They know what the future's going to be, so what are they going to do with what is between then and now? Yeah, much less so in um, in Melancholia, since for the first half of the film, nobody knows it's going to happen. 
Okay, that's the f- in in the first. It's more a, a film about depression, uh, as its title might suggest. So we see um, in 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 the first half, uh, the our our protagonist um, uh, that she. Um, uh, you know, her, her colla- her Kristen Dunst collapsing into depression, uh, and the, you know, the, 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 the terrible suffering that that involves. And then in the second half of the film, uh, she slowly, st- under the care of, uh, her sister Charlotte Gainsbourg, starts to come out of it, uh, just as now the other characters are, uh, you know, people are starting to worry, right? Uh, but even there, it's only in the last, Maybe 15, 20 minutes of the film that people real that that are the few characters that we have all know that oh the, the world really is going to end. Interesting. Uh, even though the audience knows from the very beginning. Ah, okay. So it's yeah. So that is a very different because with last night, right? That the the characters have all accepted that it is going to happen. Yeah. And and I guess the reversal would be that uh, our expectations might be that we expect something to happen in the end where the world doesn't end, but the characters are not in a position to actually believe that because they, they've accepted the end of the world. Right. Um, and although I, I will say that I, I did not personally get a sense that there was going to be a, uh, a salvation at the last minute. In fact, I felt that if the, Excuse me. If the film had done that, I feel like it would have been an utter disaster. Oh yeah, no, and it. I mean, it. There's. I don't think the. It. I don't think it expects the audience to think there's any salvation possible. I mean, and in fact, I think the film depends absolutely on us knowing it. The world is going to end. We ha- I think we have to believe this, right? It, it's like um, uh, you know Dickens uh, saying that we have to believe that Marley is dead. That has to be established, or nothing wonderful can come of the tale I'm about to relate. Uh, so we have to believe that the world is going to end. We have, or we have to know it, yeah. uh, and not expect that it, there uh, will be any kind of salvation, because that is so completely not the point of this film. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's an interesting uh, a way of kind of, you know, it, this is a film that that should be more depressing than it actually is. Which I mean, there there are some there are some really wonderful moments. Truly beautiful moments I felt in this film. I mean, you know, setting aside Callum Rennie's character, who is kind of a sleazeball. <laughs> um, I mean, he's he's a comic sleazeball, right? Like we know what he's doing. He's doing a thing that that you know we we know it's a, it's a trope. The kind of the guy who's trying to knock off check boxes by having sex yeah. with different women, doing different stuff, yada yada yada. And it's pretty clear that all of the uh, the women coming to see him, you know, know pretty much what the score is. Right. They, yeah. yeah. They're not. They're. I mean, uh, the the first one who shows up and he says, uh, "Sister Hurl, I'm not just doing this just because you're black." And she says, "Yes, you are. Yes, I, mean, I am." He says. He says. He says to her right before that that, that oh, you're you know, my friend that I like. I I knew met you at a party, and my friend of my friend who was at the party said there's a beautiful girl, and I knew he was talking about you, and that's how I know you're beautiful. <laughs> it's like yeah. this really awkward way of trying to compliment when really it's just like, I mean, there's this awkwardness in his character. Which I think kind of pulls away that sleazeballiness a little bit. Like he's he's made a meticulous re, like a, a decision about how he's going to spend those last days. Mm-hmm. And while they're sleazy, he's trying to to not be sleazy about it. Yeah, if and that then, makes sense. Yeah, and the awkwardness I think is 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 vitally important because that's 
one of the big things throughout the film, right? Is uh, it is it is a a comedy of social awkwardness, right? There's lots of cringe moments where people are embarrassed. In particular, uh, Patrick Wheeler, the, the Don McKellar character, who's who who feels the uh, these kinds of things very acutely, and we we see him being embarrassed over and over again. Uh, and it's all these very recognizable little character moments. I mean, there's there's that the moment where he encounters. Um, uh, an acquaintance from high school uh, in the in the street who's the one who's going to be doing the concert uh, and uh, uh, Craig uh, uh, Craig Zwiller is that no no that's uh, sorry that's uh, Craig Zwiller is uh, Keith Rennie's um, uh, character um, uh, Menzies um, and uh, Menzies recognizes Patrick but Patrick doesn't recognize uh, Menzies right and and Patrick gets that deer in the headlights uh, sort of frantically trying to recognize the, the guy because it's oh it's gonna be so embarrassing if he doesn't right uh, yeah. there or you know encountering his um, high school uh, French teacher coming out of Craig's apartment uh, and uh, proceeds and, to grill him on his French. <laughs> yes, yeah, uh, and we see him stumbling th- along in, uh, in 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 very uh, sort of a, you know, uh, uh, basic way, telling her what he's done about the buildings that he's that he's helped design and uh, th- this sort of thing. I mean, there's everybody is still um, uh, following the norms of, uh, in, in some ways, of, of, of social behavior in context where it doesn't necessarily make any sense anymore, and yet it's what they have. Uh, it, you know, the though it's meant as a gag when uh, Patrick's father says it's a test of our values. Uh, there's a an element in which that is true, and that we are seeing how, what the values of all all of these characters are. Yeah, and I think that that. There's a moment in the film where that starts to fall away a little bit, which is, again, with our Callum Rennie, Craig Zwiller character, when he actually propositions Patrick yeah. w- to have a basically gay sex. And it's kind of like the climax of the awkward, of the comedy of awkwardness in the film. Right, it, it, it certainly is, but it's also this, this moment where I think a lot of the mask kind of comes away, like, this is this is not a normal request, and here we are. We're plunging all the way into, like he. We've just had a conversation about the fact that he's meticulously done all this stuff to come up with this list, and, and he's shown it now. Yeah. But now in this moment, it's like, but I was doing this as a way of trying to convince you that we should have a gay a gay moment together, and they do have one. They 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 kiss, which. I thought it was kind of cute, <laughs> uh, but it is it is this moment where all of that kind of the the awkwardness of trying to be normal in a in what would seem to be normal social situations in a moment when they're no longer normal they're they're kind of absurd. In that moment, it's it goes all the way it's to the far end of it, saying no, no. Now we're going to go into the most abnormal of requests uh, because why else would you say? Right. Let's have our gay sex moment, except in a moment when you realize that you will not be able to have this experience with anybody else because the world is going to end. But but Patrick still hangs on to uh, to a degree. Both of them are still though um, uh, clinging to those uh, the those conventions because uh, I mean Craig is is hesitant and embarrassed about asking. Uh, and you know, trying to you know, uh, you know, be be as matter of fact as possible, but but Patrick just doesn't get it, so he finally has to spell it out, even though it's obviously painful for him to do so. And then Patrick, who doesn't, who's not interested, but doesn't want to hurt his friend's feelings, 
Um, and Let's him down easy. You know, is, is trying to, and you know, it's the. Uh, I think the, the physical comedy here is quite delightful as they're both, you know, sort of starting to, they're sitting down when the conversation begins and they both kind of half stand up and then half go down. The camera remain, and, and the camera sort of follows them, right? Yeah. Uh, and and uh, neither of them really knows what to do. And then when we get to the, the, the moment of the kiss uh, and uh, uh, Patrick's eyes are wide open and kind of going around in circles and, uh, and, they, they, and they both, you know, it both ends, right, with, where they... You know, they, they sort of get to the point where either Craig seems to realize, oh, maybe this isn't what I had in mind after all. And there's a retreat into, um, uh, homophobic gags, um, and, uh, kind of sort of macho sort of, um, uh, back patting kind of, uh, sort of, oh, this is just, you know, uh, what, what were we thinking kind of, uh, business. So they, 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 they latch onto those conventions to get themselves out of uh, it was all of a sudden becoming very awkward for both of them again. Um, and, True. uh, and yet still ending on a moment of, of, of genuine emotion, right? Um, with a kind of melancholy, um, as, as we stay with Craig, right? I mean, he and, and, um, uh, and Patrick exchange, you know, curses and middle fingers and, and whatnot. But then, you know, he just he, he watches his friend go, and then just stays in the the lobby of the the apartment building uh, a few Smoking moments longer. Smoking a cigarette. Well, I mean, yeah. he doesn't stay there the whole time because eventually he gets the. Yeah, yeah, uh, no, no, just it's just it's it's just a moment. It's um, just a moment. But uh, yeah, it's the 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 thing that that uh, McKellar does in this in in the film is that the he keeps slipping in these these very real moments along with the comedy. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting uh, thing that I think this film does. Um, Another thing that, uh, you know, I really wanted to talk about some other, we keep talking about Craig, and I think that's because he's the most, I don't, I don't know if visceral is the word I would use, but the most, this is the, kind of the most absurd character, I yeah, think. Yeah, he's, he's probably way. the most caricatured, I mean, constantly playing the same song, um, the, 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 a lot of the gags are centered, uh, around him. But I, I think the, the heart of the film are, is, uh, Sandra Oh and, um, uh, as, well, her, her character is called Sandra. Uh, and, uh, and, and Don McKellar as Patrick. I mean, they're the, uh, the characters that, um, we keep coming back to and that we end sure. with, right? Yeah, that's uh, who we end with. And it, and it is interesting because the, one of the very first things that we learn about Patrick is that he, uh, his parents are upset with him because he wants to spend his last moments alone. And of course, through the film, we learn why it's because his, his wife has died. Um, I can't, I can't remember if it tells us what the illness is, but she, she no. dies. She's dead, 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 dead. And he wants to spend it alone. And the very first time he actually meets uh, Sandra, they have this conversation where he's trying to convince her that being alone in these final moments is okay. And she looks at him like he is the weirdest dude at this moment, that there actually may be something wrong with him. She actually looks at him suspiciously, right, that he he may be off. And then, of course, they have this, this walk through the city where they're trying to steal a car and they're having yeah. a conversation about why it's okay to be alone and he gives this sort of philosophical uh almost like treatise about uh you know why we need to be be okay with who we are and accepting it and how people will will do things you know in moments of of desperation to you know fulfill a void and 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 in the case this case right he's talking about this idea like i could go get a woman and spend it in these last moments but it wouldn't be real it wouldn't be a real experience it would be trying to fill a void and rather than that like what he's talking about is that he want he's already figured out his way of filling the void it turns out he hasn't 
Um, and Sandra's character kind of reveals that to him. Uh, but I, I like that, that, that this is, that the, that our focus is really on Patrick. He's our primary character and we see his development throughout from this sort of, he's not depressed. But he depresses us. <laughs> yeah, he's he's very perhaps repressed. Uh, the uh, yeah. I mean, when he says that um, when he's uh, revealing uh, his his past uh, to Sandra, and he says that one of the things that is um, his lost um, uh, love showed him is that how much he he could love. He says, and it sounds funny coming from someone like me, um, but that he was able to to love a great deal. Uh, and, yeah. and, and so, and, you know, the, the, he feels the loss. Um, you know, the, it, we, perhaps we see him then retreating even more, um, uh, in on himself afterwards. I, I have to mention as an aside, when you're talking about their, their conversation they have in the street, and when they're looking for a car for, uh, uh, for her to, you know, to steal, it is another one of my favorite little moments in the film when he's trying to figure out how to hotwire the car. And of course, has no idea how to do it. Nope. All right. uh, in fact, it, while it was going on, I actually Googled how to hotwire. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking, I remember sort of watching that moment in the film and sort of like ineffectually kicking the uh, the underneath of the steering wheel. I'm thinking, yes, that's exactly what I would be doing. You know, completely clueless in 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 this situation. Uh, not you know, it, just relying on knowledge from movies. And guess what? They don't really apply. Right. It it doesn't kind of work out that way. Um, and of course it's, it's, it's Patrick trying to be a good person and, and not a lot of people are like that in this film. And it's this really, you know, I mean, we get the family and I, and I love that even as with the, his family, right, that some of that kind of the mask of pleasantness falls away a little bit with the, the, the older characters. I mean, you remember that scene when they're watching when the, uh, the, the grandmother and, uh, or, uh, the sister, uh, yeah. It, it, think of the children. Why does everyone say, say, think of the children? They don't know what they're missing. I've invested right. 80 years in this life. Yeah. Like, you know, it, it, I love that, that it's very much. And then, of course, right. The, the grandmother says, good point. Yeah. And then, of course, th- her kids come in. Well, yeah. one of her kids, right? But yeah. kid in law. Um, and I love it. It's, it's one of the, it's, it's a darkly humorous moment, but it is also very uh, deeply emotional. And uh, and really, it's this just very interesting idea that, you know, here are these old people, these people who have really experienced so much of life. And the film even pays more attention to the characters who are on who are in the younger generation, the people who are like my age, right in their 30s. Yeah. Right, this generation who's supposed to have replaced the older generation, and there's this kind of irony that the film I think brings out in that that well, shouldn't the ones we feel the most sad for, the ones who have experienced so much of life, who who will who will end, and all of that that stuff that they have contributed will be be meaningless. I mean, yeah, it, I think the the film becomes a um as a sort of, gives us all kinds of different sort of angles or refractions of of feeling loss or experiencing loss. I think that, that that's one uh, a very good example there. Another would be all the people that we see at Menzies' concert, right? Uh, oh, quite a God, few of them yeah. are there alone, right? Yeah. Um, and including uh, so Geneviève Bujold, um, uh, Mrs. Carlton, or Madame Carlton, um, as, as, as they know her. Now, we don't know... Um, uh, what her story is, and for for most most of the characters, we're just seeing them in the moment. 
right? Uh, and and how they're dealing with things. But you know, so uh, she has dealt with, uh, you know, gone to have um, uh, sex with one former student, uh, and then attend the concert of another one. Uh, right. where we see her, you know, uh, you know, starting to weep, uh, during the, uh, the music. Now, we, um, you know, presumably it's not accidental that, um, we, uh, um, we know, we hear her as Madame Carlton. So she's married, um, yep. or has been, uh, you know, is there still a husband in the picture? Uh, we don't know. We, uh, uh, there's, there's, but, the film gives her that that designation, um, which sort of invites the question. Um, and she she you know in a way she's she's coming to the end of her life alone. Um, though there's a suggestion of her finding some kind of uh, I hesitate to use the word fulfillment, but but she's finding something at any rate uh, by attending Menzies' concert. Well, I think that she does because that that's. Her identity in the film is is pretty much isolated to the fact that she's a former teacher. So, in a way, every time she meets one of her students, it's very much a kind of assessment of where they've taken themselves. And I remember, I can't yeah. remember which characters. Uh, some character at some point in the film have a conversation about what what are you doing with your life? Oh no, it's it's with it's with the uh, with um Craig. Yeah, right? uh, and I well, think the, it's her that asks him, right? What, yeah, what, what have you been doing with your life? With your life? Yeah, and and he says he, you know, he was he was studying to be a doctor, and he was going to be a doctor, and it's sort of like this moment where it's sort of yeah, and and that's all over with. So it's sort and of yet this, she says, "Isn't it nice how things work out?" Yeah, and, and you're right. Yeah, and it, and I feel like there's this very clear sense that for her, that that fulfillment comes in the form of of success as 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 a teacher. And that and that moment with Menzi, I think, is is probably the culmination because we get all the, these characters, right? We get Patrick, who uh, has failed at French, but presumably has succeeded at least more or less at life. We have Craig, who has not even completed the aspects of life that would make him a success, but was on his way, but is now, of course, devolved into <laughs> sexcapades. Uh, right. And then you have Menzi, who has finally got his big uh, recital. Yes. Right? And plays this, I believe it's a Howard Shore written piece. Yeah. This amazingly dark, discordant, uh, uh, piano piece. And, and well, I mean, I, it's intended, I think, in the film to be sort of his masterpiece. And in the context of the film, I think it's, it's, it's a really well done piece. It sort of captures so it's much very of that melancholy. Emotion. It's very, it's very sad. It is very sad, very melancholy. It's emotional. You can see the emotion he plays out as he's doing it. Um, it, and that's how, of course, it's another one of the ways in which we see characters sort of enacting, like, this is the final thing I'm going to do. Craig has sex with a, a virgin. That's his, that's the thing he wants to do. Patrick is the one character who, well, Patrick and Sandra are the two characters who technically don't get the, what they actually want. Um, with the exception maybe of Jenny, his sister who I guess they were going to the boyfriend's parents, but they never make it. But it doesn't seem like they really care. <laughs> well, they said they were going there, and then they were going to the party. Uh, okay, Jenny, so incidentally, is uh, Sarah Pauly, who's another uh, Canadian luminary. Um, yeah. So, and, and was almost ubiquitous in films around at that time. And in fact, when the film came out, uh, it almost seemed to be that um, some law had been passed that you couldn't make a film in Canada without casting Don McKellar in a part somewhere. <laughs> um, 
funny. So, uh, so yeah, well, and then, yeah, I mean, that's the thing where, where where Sandra and Patrick come together is that Sandra is unable to get to her husband. Where uh, and there, I mean, you, you mentioned the, the characters giving the, the 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 end of the world the middle finger. Well, she and uh, uh, David Cronenberg are uh, going to uh, kill each other, uh, shoot, shoot each other just before midnight, so that they choose the moment of their passing. They're not taken out by the world, right? By, by, her, by the her, end of the world. What she says is right. Like I'm not just going to pass away. Yeah. And I'm not just going to let the world take me. I'm just yes. gonna, I'm going to have a, an act in it. Yeah. But she cannot get to her husband. Patrick wants to be left alone. <laughs> he can't get. He can't be left alone. Every time he tries, uh, there, there, there's Sandra at the door. Uh, and uh, so in the end, though, um, we see the. Uh, uh, the coming together of of the two, where um, yeah, and she says, "Okay, make me love you, right?" Uh, so oh, that's so awkward. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and but it, it, another very awkward moment, but also genuinely um, uh, full of emotion. Uh, and and so um, and he agrees to um, you know to shoot her. I mean, it's, it's again, it's another awkward moment. I want you to shoot me. Oh. Oh, that's what uh, you, you were, the question you were going to ask. I'll shoot you too, she promises. And it's the <laughs> same response he has to when, uh, when Craig says, I want us to have gay sex, right? Because he gets up and he yeah. starts almost pacing and it's this awkwardness. And he, and he basically tries to find his way out. He's like, like but I don't know you. Yeah. And yeah. I need why to did, know you. Why did you, you pick this you. wine? It's bad wine. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and. I feel like that final moment is really the most awkward because they sit down and they try to learn about each other to make this final moment intimate, which is, it makes sense given that that's what Sandra is intending to do anyways, to go be with her husband and die essentially like in a romantic Romeo and Juliet Tev. Well, I guess that's not quite accurate, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, But when she can't have that, she's trying to recreate it with, Patrick but it's so artificial and yet yeah. even in the final moment right what what I find very heartening is they don't actually do it they put the guns down in the last possible second right and so though the the and they yeah, kiss. The, yeah. the the make me love you in in that moment didn't necessarily work right uh is you know when, when she uh, you know, he tells he says, oh, that's my big tragic story that usually does the job. <laughs> he just doesn't have anything else. Um, and so when they go out for the end, and they, and again the, these these wonderful little banal details, they actually decide to you know to, you know to go to the washroom one last time. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yep. <laughs> like it's going to matter. Um, but they you know they they get all prepared. But and then though as those final seconds come, right? Uh, and you know and and they're looking at each other. They they. They break through, uh, you know, whatever uh, was still, uh, you know, holding them apart. There, there is that kiss, right? They do find each other, um, you know, literally in the last ten seconds before the world ends. Yeah, and it, you know, it. I have some issues with it because I, I'm. It was not clear to me how the film was trying to frame those those final moments. Uh, is that kiss? just a an intimate final moment or is it intended to be sort of like we've we've tried to have the conversation that leads to some sort of romantic interest and that failed but throughout the movie we've really been getting to know each other and in fact in this moment we we've decided the romantic moment's okay and then that actually is the kind of refutation of Patrick's sort of 
like I don't need to be with somebody, you know, it's okay to be alone thing at the earlier well, in the film. Well, that has already happened when he he clearly, you know, um, he does develop an attachment to Sandra um, when she is when they they've gone to Craig's and Craig is going to uh, let her use um, his car, uh, and um, when she says, "Oh, and Patrick." Uh, and he goes, yes, and kind of leans forward as if, you know, like there's, there's a connection. And then she says, um, uh, just, oh, if my husband calls, let him tell him I'm on my way. Uh, so the, and then when he says, I want you to stay, I don't want to be alone, uh, uh, earlier. So he, he now, in fact, is feeling something for her. Uh, and the. Well, Craig catches on to it, right? Because he's oh, like, yeah, hey, he's, hey, you're, you're, bang- you're banging her, right, dude? Yeah. Yeah, in, in, in his in, inimitable way. And, 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 that, and, that, and that isn't what Patrick wants, right? Uh, in, in fact, when he's, he says, when, when he's turning uh, Craig down, he says, that I'd say the same thing uh, to a woman. Uh, you know, the, I mean, everything else in my mind, the last thing I want to deal with is the possibility of bad sex <laughs> in the, yeah. my last hours on Earth. Um, and it's not sex with, with Sandra. It is that uh, uh, emotional connection between the two of them right it is this uh, when when we get that kiss it's um it's this if if, if nothing else is it's one last moment of affirmation uh as the world ends right and it, and it kind of pauses the um uh, the, the 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 apocalypse for us we the countdown fades away uh, just as they were hitting around like four or three, right? We, so we, we just suspend the moment. We have their kiss as the camera rotates, uh, uh around them. Uh, the, we've seen all the, we've seen all the other characters and we get the fade to white as they're, they, they, they have reached. I mean, in some ways it's a happy ending. Everybody is more or less getting what they wanted at the end. Right. And then we end with those two characters, um, who are, um, you know, we, we see in a very, you know, teary, heartfelt expression of something very real, uh, in, in, in that last suspended second before yeah. our final fade to white. Yeah. It's an interesting, it's an interesting way of, of approaching it. And overall, I really, really enjoyed this film. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't mind, you know, like a deep impact. That's a fun movie. Um, it's better than the, the other one. Uh, Armageddon? The, I, I'm sorry. The, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> just, uh, to be fair, I kind of enjoy Armageddon, but it's not a good movie. I mostly like it because of Steve Buscemi, who writes the, uh, the nuke. <laughs> right. <laughs> like a cowboy. <laughs> Which is fun. And, and I mostly like it for the cast because it also goes Mark, Michael Clark Duncan, who, I remember in the interrogation scene, he breaks down crying, and it's this just this really ironic thing because here's this guy with this immensely deep voice and muscles the size of a human head, ten feet tall, and uh, yeah, yeah, huge man, yeah, bawling, bawling. It's just it's it makes you just want to hug him. <laughs> but now uh, Michael Clark Duncan, who has passed far too soon, um, so I mean I I I like this approach that this film takes a lot because it's. It's so much about the characters and their responses to the end of the world. I love the family and everything we get out of the family. The father who's obsessed with, you know, we need to maintain civil behavior. It's a test of our values. The mother who is constantly about trying to recreate moments while not acknowledging what's happening. Yeah. Right? Trying her damnedest to avoid it. The, the grandparents, uh, and the, the, the aunt, I guess, would be the, the yeah. appropriate title, who, 
are reminiscing, right? They're they're having nostalgic moments about childhood, and then in the that final moment, kind of rejecting it and saying like, "To hell with childhood, right? Yeah. What about us?" Well, and, it, and it's not, yeah, it's because it's not their childhood. They're they're seeing their their um, well, the grandchildren, the grandchildren, the, the grandchildren. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and yeah, and it's a thing, like you know, because it, it it that that speech that she gives, it's you know, everyone talks about the kids. Well, I'm tired of hearing about the kids. And it's like, yeah, because that's who everyone's focusing on as the big tragic figures. All of the children of the world who will not experience life. Mm-hmm. Not all the people who have spent all of these years in a life who will now have it stopped. Knowing, knowing all of the wonder and the joy and the pain and the, and everything about life, knowing that that will end, that all of the things that they love about living is gone. Where and she makes that point perfectly, right? Where she says like they don't know what they're missing. Yeah. Right. And it's right. Like, why should we feel bad for all of the the babies that are about to die? I mean, even Sandra Rose says right that she's pregnant, right? Just to see whether or not she had the power to do it. Is that that's the reason she gives us, right? And it's like, it's again like why why would we feel more of a visceral reaction at the idea that her unborn child is going to die, never living a life? Rather than all of the the elderly people who have lived lives and have now haven't haven't it stolen away from them, yeah. And I mean, there's there's a great tragedy there, which the film of course undercuts with a kind of comedic tone with with the parents <laughs> coming in, yeah. And then they do their little prayer circle, and I love what the father says. It's sort of like I can't remember what he exactly says, but it's something effective like, "Please God, like, like help us through." the thing that's happening <laughs> yeah like a really just not a, it's not a prayer it's just kind yeah. of like a we're doing we're going through the motions and this this death moment and it's it's nothing we can there's nothing we can do like what do we ask god for we're all dead which is and it's also the moment when the gas fails Right, uh, because the, uh, uh, the, the sole remaining employee, uh, at the, uh, the gas company has gone off to have her tryst with Craig. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so I guess the last thing, cause we probably have to wrap up pretty soon yeah. here, um, is, you know, I really enjoyed the film. I mean, Sandra O's performance is really exceptional here. Uh, it's, it's an amazing performance. She got an award for it. Uh, I can't remember. It's a Canadian award. The, the, the genies. Yeah. Uh, got an award for it. Uh, you know, Callum Rennie, who I really love because Battlestar Galactic, he was a Cylon. Uh, lovely time. Uh, he, he's really great in his role here. Um, a lot of characters, even small characters, I mean, are, they, they pull off the role really well. But I had some issues with, um, Don, uh, Don McKellar's performance. Uh, there were just some notes in his performance that felt a little forced. Oh, I, I don't know if that's his direction of himself or if that's the persona he intended to like he felt to me like like a Canadian Woody Allen. Well, I guess that there's some aspect of that. I mean, he has a very particular um uh style of 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 delivery and um uh and and a persona. I I think his his performance is actually uh I think it's very very good. Uh it um uh, I think it, it it's very funny in the uh, like the his, his, his well in the the moments of awkwardness the uh, the gestures all felt felt very very real and that moment when he's talking about um, the um, the death of his wife and uh, and we see him essentially swallow a sob as he's uh, trying to describe what 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 happens um, there's 
that has struck me, has always struck me as one of the best, um, m m most convincing uh, uh, performances of tears I've seen in film. Uh, that the uh, as, as he keeps keeps talking, but the way he did it, it was so real uh, that, uh, that 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 has always impressed me. Hmm. Okay. I mean, I won't say that I I dislike all of his performance. I think that scene was really good. I'll agree with you there that I that scene's really well done. I think most of the the endings like. 10 minutes or so i think we're pretty spot on there's this he handles the awkwardness really well of what's going on and that that spinning camera shot which i really like the spinning camera there's some really good camera shots here um of their they're staring into each other's eyes as they're about to shoot each other and they're both basically crying and sobbing and then the, the kiss i think that is good i think there are just some moments in the film where he, he, the the tone that he presents just kind of rubbed me a little off, and I don't know what it is. It may be just something particular, as you said, right? That he, he may be an acquired taste. Style. Yeah, he's he, there's a. Um, I mean, he has a very particular delivery, and for me, it works. Um, okay. But uh, it uh, yeah it but it it does it, it may take some getting used to. Um, but uh, yeah, so but I. I have to ask this. Uh, I know we're running out of time, but just to come back to the whole Canadian humor thing, the uh -oh. the the big guitar jam gag did that resonate? Okay, um, you know it did at the time, but now I've forgotten it. So Randy Bachman uh, take, teaching you know two thousand uh, or however many uh, guitar players uh, uh, to the basic chords of uh, taking care of business. Um, yeah, 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 taking care of business. Yeah, so yeah. a you know, um, so one of the those um, you know uh, perennial staples of Canadian rock radio, right? Sort of like one of the sort of classic Canadian rock songs, um, and in fact, so well known, it's uh, um, it, it, it's it's a gigantic cliche. So, Interesting. Okay, so, so yeah, I, I so that, have that got that cultural context. That that got a big laugh the first time I saw that in the theaters. Oh, okay. See that that's some things that again, right? That uh, I thought that it was it was a funny I thing because of the situation, but I yeah. missed that cultural context. Yeah, that it was that yeah. uh, that song. Like all of a sudden you go, like, oh yeah, of course it would I, be that song. Yeah. I will admit that I laughed when uh, when Patrick talks about Pete Seeger being a socialist. <laughs> when he, he's talking about his mom giving yes. him this. Oh, record. why do you have to ruin everything? Nice? Why do you have to ruin everything? <laughs> And, and Sandra O, oh, like her performance, like yeah. it's interesting as I think Sandra O's oh's character does actually change a lot. And then we got we got to move on. But I, yeah. I just want to say this last thing because the first time we see her, right, she's very stern, right. I'm, I'm, yeah. I, and and I love that her response to him is, "Oh, I, I didn't know that he was socialist." And then it's like it's like not because yeah. of course they don't know each other, so she's being very no, short. It's with It's another him. awkward moment. Would you like a magazine? Because uh, they're just sitting waiting for nothing in his apartment. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is, and I do love that that performance a lot. And I, I I just laughed out loud when her line is this very matter of fact, <laughs> you know, like oh I didn't know he was a socialist. And then it's like there's no way. How do you respond to that? Like what do you yeah. say? Like, and then his response is he starts reading the the lyrics, <laughs> and he's like it's Spanish. <laughs> At which point she starts to get this you know back up slowly and don't make eye contact look on her face. <laughs> yeah, I should go. I should go. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Um, but in any case, uh, it's a very interesting film. I think uh, if, if folks are looking for an interesting sci-fi film, 
about the end of the world, Last Night is a good pick. And uh, one that is, though at the same time, is virtually devoid of any science fictional elements. Uh, in that we know, it, well, they're, they're, they're deep, deep, deep background. Let me put it that way. Sure, sure. I, I'm yeah. still counting it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's sci-fi. definitely. I would say it's, it's definitely uh, in in the genre, uh, but um, it's not going to be what you expect as far as end of the world movies are concerned. It's not Deep Impact. No. No. As much no. as I like Deep Impact, yeah. also directed by a woman. Yes. So. Yeah. Maybe later. Yeah. 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 I think. Uh, I think last night's closest cousins are uh, the day the Earth caught fire and melancholia, and I'll be interested to hear what uh, your take on Abel Ferrara's. 444 is, which is, sounds like the film that has the closest, uh, that, that, that has an idea very, very similar to uh, last night's. Well, when I get to it, you'll, you will know because I'll, I'll write about it. Okay. So, well, but in any case, uh, we should talk about what's coming up next. So, right. Next month is October. Uh, I'm sorry, when is this one going? Oh, yeah, this one's going up soon. So, this one is our September movie. I should know. Either way, October is coming up in the future of this podcast. Yes, yes. Uh, This podcast was supposed to drop a few days ago, but we had some scheduling problems because I don't have a life anymore. Um, And, in any case, but we've got October coming up, and October is obviously Halloween time. And as we discovered a few days ago... Wes Craven passed away um, from, as I recall, brain cancer. And uh, Wes Craven being basically one of the the big pioneers of horror films, um, it seems like a good idea for us to spend some time honoring his work. And so uh, we're going to do a two-part episode towards the end of October on uh, in celebration of Halloween. And the first one is actually going to be my original movie pick, for October, which is going to be a Catherine Bigelow film called Near Dark from 1987. Oh, yes. Yep. Which uh, I, I picked that one primarily because uh, we have not done... I don't think we've done a movie with a female director yet. Not yet, no. So I wanted to pick something, and I figured, well, there are a few horror films done by female directors, and Near Dark has a pretty good track record, and I've never seen it, and I, I've heard it's pretty darn good. So we're going to watch it. It's also got Lance Henriksen in it, and honestly, I'll watch anything with that man in it. So I wanted to read You've got half the cast of Aliens in that. I know. Bill Paxton's in it, too. It's wonderful. Yeah, and uh, um, uh, Jeanette Goldstein. Oh. Vasquez. Oh, that's awesome. Vasquez is great. I'm sorry. I got a little excited. Uh, In any case, um, so that's the film we're going to do in the first part of it. And then the second part is going to be essentially in honor of Wes Craven, uh, given his contributions to the horror world and to film in general. And David has picked a Wes Craven movie for us to discuss. And what movie would that be, sir? Uh, I went back and forth between several, but I finally settled on The People Under the Stairs uh, as being uh, perhaps a kind of culmination of the social criticism uh, in his films that, uh, uh, so it's, it's kind of the kind of um, culmination of things like The Last House on the Left and The Hills Have Eyes, uh, and uh, I think uh, there's all kinds of really interesting stuff in that film. Excellent, excellent. So uh, if I've I recall all of these films should be easy enough to find uh, in some digital venue, um, with the exception of Near Dark, which seems to be like in the dark zone. Um, it's only available on Vudu, which is really lame. But what are you going to do? Um, I'm sorry, I need to re-say that again because I burped <laughs> <laughs> in the middle of that. 
Um, so give me one second, yep. and it's the the people under the stairs. Yeah. People under the stairs. Okay, I just want to see. It's out on disc. I don't know if it's on any of the yeah. streaming oh, services. Oh yeah, that one's gonna be a lot easier to watch than Near Dark. That's sad. Okay, so anyway, I'll just I'll just five four three two one it, and then I'll just do that yep. a bit over. Five four three two one. Excellent. So, if folks would like to watch these films, uh, unfortunately, Near Dark is the 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 it's in the dark zone, so it's a little hard to find. Uh, it's available on Vudu for nine ninety nine. Uh, it may be available elsewhere. It's just not showing it to me. So that one may be a little bit hard to to hunt down in a digital format. Um, but the people under the stairs happens to be pretty much everywhere you can watch films digitally at the the cheaper three dollar rental. Um, so. You got plenty of options there, um, and some of these may or may not be on Netflix at some point in the near future. I don't know. Um, it's hard to say. So, plenty of ways to watch these. Um, you got plenty of time to watch them. So, there's that. And the last thing I should note is that, uh, we're opening a new episode feature for Totally Pretentious. And it involves movies, obviously. And I, I think I should just tell you what it is, which is that Jen, my friend Jen and I are starting a second uh, sort of subcast for this called Into the Wardrobe, in which we review uh, basically children's films, great children's films from our childhoods, other people's childhoods. And the first episode we're releasing will be on The Goonies, which is a classic, wonderful film. And David has not seen it because he's I a have horrible not, man. <laughs> I'm too old. It passed me by. One day, David, I will put the Goonies on and you will watch it. All right. <laughs> and on that note, folks, um, thanks very much for listening. We will see you in the next episode. Bye now.